0: Knowing what body this
1: character has
0: really drops me Actions,
1: in. the thesaurus, that has become like a bible Creative visualizations that really set me free
0: I love actioning, very specific action verb.
1: Understanding their backstory is vital in order to be able to This
2: is the actor's thing. mind, what are we called? Welcome to well, the actor's, actor's mind st- Well, I like that, do you want to say it this time? Yeah, Okay, I do, do, it, do it, I didn't do it. realize I did until
0: you asked <laughs> Welcome to episode two of the Actors Mind podcast, a podcast where we discuss acting tools from both a practical acting perspective and a psychological science perspective. My name is Kateri McRae. I'm an associate professor of psychology at the University of Denver.
2: And my name is Anne Penner. I'm an associate professor of theater. I teach acting, directing, movement classes, and I'm an actor, director, producer.
0: And today we're going to be talking
2: about substitution. That's our tool from the acting side of things. We're mostly going to be using the word substitution, but you'll also hear this phrase as if, maybe occasionally magic if, and then also maybe transference a little bit. Mm-hmm. And Kateri's side of things is.
0: From a psychological perspective, most people I think would consider the meat of substitution to be what most psychologists call episodic memory. So we'll be talking about how that works in the brain and all of the different properties of it and how it makes substitution work. Great. So our main goal is to define substitution
2: and we've turned it into a three-step process, which hopefully will help some of you understand it. And a a lesser but still important objective or goal for today is to, uh, I guess, dispel the myth uh, to some extent of method acting. Do you want to start with this, Kateri?
0: Yeah, I think from a relatively lay perspective, I guess me having the more lay perspective between the two of us, a lot of times when people think about acting, they think about actors doing this deep dive into a character and that there, there's this danger of it being so deep that there is no more separation between actor and character, which is, you know, really distressing to think about. Um, but also I think there's like this stereotype of acting training being basically training you to sort of like page back through your own emotional memories in your lifetime and just be really good at bringing them to the surface and like dwelling in them and living them and just sort of like rehashing your own most emotional pieces of your own life. And there are, might be some kernels of truth to that, but I think that just that in and of itself would actually be pretty poor acting. Yeah, and I, I too, even though I know a fair amount about
2: theater, don't know a ton about. Uh, method acting—it's—it's it's taken from some Stanislavski training. And Lee Strasberg was the 20th century teacher who did, who's who's best known for method acting. Though there are there are others, or teaching method acting. And the the main objective of it is great, which is for uh, an actor to emotionally connect to character. And I'm sure he taught it beautifully. Um, the the bad, the two aspects, and Kateri's has already sp- spoken to them. Is this idea of feeling that you need to rehash difficult hurtful memories from your life, which ultimately we'll get to the point where when we teach substitution, you'll realize uh, we will discourage you from uh, entering into memories that uh, are too close to you in that way. And then the second thing is we know a lot of uh, famous actors, right, who spend... Uh, who are in character 24 hours a day, seven days a week during the filming of a movie, um, in pre-production, uh, texting, um, uh, co-actors sort of in character. And and to me, the, really, the question is, yes, you're know, spending time in character is useful, but if you're doing it all the time, how how helpful is that to the people around you and even to you?
0: Yeah. And so I think what we want to do is talk about this sort of like really kind of beautiful... Um, balance between sort of diving into some of your own memories and your own past in service of what the character needs and in the service of, um, there's this wonderful word, particularizing, right? The, the experience of the character or the situation of the character, um, but then coming back out of it, yeah, you know, almost equally as fluidly and using that experience for, you know, the given circumstances of, of the play. I love that. Great, so let's start by defining
2: a substitution. And the the theater acting books that I'm gonna be using a lot is Uta Hagen's Respect for Acting, to a much lesser extent her second book, Uta Hagen's Challenge for the Actor, Mm -hmm. and then also uh, the ever-useful Practical Handbook for the Actor. So a substitution is, is a way of personalizing and particularizing any single moment on stage in character. One really good example, and we're actually gonna pick up where we left off from episode one, where we talked about objective and appraisal. Um, Practical Handbook for the Actor talks about an as if, which is a way of personalizing an objective. So once you've figured out the objective, the thing you are playing, the thing you're trying to achieve, what you wanna do, the next step in the analysis is to say it's as if, and then find something rooted in your personal life that can, Um, attach you, can hook you in, and we could say emotionally to some extent, but really can hook you in in multiple ways to that objective. So for example, if you're playing Othello, right, and your objective is in some ways to kill your beloved wife Desdemona, you think, well, how am I going to empathize with that? How am I in any way going to connect with that? You can, which is you have to maybe reconsider that objective and find a way to almost pan out, to make it, I don't want to say more general, but to rephrase it in a way that you can empathize with. So for example, it is to right a wrong, right? You've been wronged, you've been betrayed, you think, by Desdemona, and it's you avenging right this wrong um, that has happened to you. And in that way, all of us can begin to say, oh, yeah, 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 there is a moment where I felt betrayed, right? Right.
0: And I think that maybe actors who do this really naturally, I suspect they probably have a really um, advanced understanding of one of the things we were talking about last week, which is the relationship between appraisal and emotion, right? So that there are these particular appraisal features that lead to particular emotions. So you know, having had uh, your goal impeded by someone other than you most often leads to anger, for example. Any experience of loss sometimes leads to sadness. So not all actors might frame it that way. Like, so you did a really good job of like, Framing the sort of overall appraisal of like what needed to be done, and I think some actors might take a shortcut through the emotion, and they might say, "I Mm -hmm. need to find a time when I'm feeling when I've felt angry," Mm -hmm. and so long as they have a really sophisticated understanding that these are the the types of situations that lead to anger, I think that's okay to use the emotion as the shortcut, as long as you're searching through your own, um, what's the word I'm looking for, your own like mental Rolodex uh-huh. um, for times in which someone else has gotten in your way of achieving one of your goals, yeah. um, then it's okay if, if you if you search for anger. Great.
2: I'm going to sound like a broken record when I say this, but it, it is fine to use emotion as a tool if it will backtrack you or mo- whether you're moving backwards or moving forward to something actable, to something doable, yeah. an action or a want. Um, so, so we have that, that's not the only example of a substitution. Uta Hagen in her substitution chapter would say substitutions are everywhere, right? So if I am on stage, I'm going to find substitutions for my relationships to the other characters, for my character myself. So if I'm playing someone who initially during, um, as I'm getting to know my character, there's aspects of the character that intuitively don't make sense to me, because there will be some aspects that intuitively do, and that's where you don't have to do the work. You have to do the work where that character seems more ambitious than me or lazier than me or louder than me or more (laughs) violent than me. Then you need to find... Characteristics within yourself or characteristics in people you know which become the substitutions and allow you then to empathize and connect and relate to. So substitutions for character, for relationships, substitutions for the environment. So say I'm totally making this up. You're on a a ship or you're having a shipwreck, right? I've never Opening scene
0: of the Tempest. Opening scene of the
2: Tempest, right. (laughs) I personally have never... uh, thankfully, been on a ship that was experiencing a shipwreck, right? So I would have to find, I'm trying to now think of an example of an environment where maybe it was turbulence, like you're on a plane, we all have felt turbulence on a plane to yeah. greater or lesser extent, so you've been in some kind of scary car situation, that might be a nice substitution which would hook you into the feeling of that.
0: Have you ever been like up on an unsteady platform somewhere like like scaffolding somewhere yes. like in a bucket? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's like that feeling of like, I need to get off of this. I don't know how it's going to end. I'm sure it might all be all right, but I'm not sure. Yes, 100%. Um, And so
2: substitutions also get into the props that you're using and finding um, uh, substitute objects, tangible objects in your real life that would work to attach yourself, to create a relationship to all of these trace elements in the scene. So that's a quick definition of substitution. Yeah. Three-step process is number one we've already discussed, which is you're finding, you're locating, and let's use objective for now, right? Yeah. You're locating a substitution for the objective. We, the one example we gave was was Othello at this point. Mm-hmm. Or same play, Desdemona is feeling, she maybe wants to, right before she's killed, she wants to quiet the dread, this is my objective for her, she wants to quiet the dread she feels, mm-hmm. right? That she maybe doesn't quite know the answer to. so. Hopefully, no one playing Desdemona has ever felt, been in the literal situation in which you believe your husband's about to hurt you or kill you, right? right. Perhaps and if you... they had, right,
0: it, odds are, that would be a horrible thing to actually bring up for the service of whatever show you're doing because that's likely a pretty traumatic experience. I mean, maybe right. after years and years and years if you're okay with it, but... It's almost like for the really extreme, right? Like if you're doing Medea and you've actually been there, maybe right. not a good thing to do.
2: Right, exactly. <laughs>
0: exactly. So maybe you, you should be in jail.
2: You find a non literal substitution that will then allow you to transfer those feelings. That's where the word transference comes up, I believe. That's more a psychological word than a, than a theater world word. Um, so the example that Uta Hagen uses, say you're playing Desdemona, you've never been in that situation, but maybe you dread going to the dentist right? Maybe mm-hmm. you dread going to the doctor. Maybe you dread faculty meetings. I don't, but maybe you <laughs> dread whatever, right? So there's that feeling of, oh God, this horrible thing is about to happen. And that feeling you have and and the, the ideas that maybe pop up in that experience can guide you to some extent to Desdemona's feeling, right? Or right. her objective. Step one. Step two is diving really deep into that substitution. And what do we mean by that? Do you wanna talk about that? Yeah,
0: so step two, again, is sort of really uh, trying to relive or uh, reinvigorate, like make more vivid again. I don't know what a better word is for that. That experience that you've had, and a lot of that I think is is what is referred to as episodic memory. So there are a lot of different types of memory that psychologists talk about. Um, One of the sort of big divisions is between semantic memory um, and episodic memory. So semantic memory is the kind of memory you have for facts and the meanings of words and things that aren't necessarily situated in a time or place. Um, But the fact that you know like what a picnic table is, right? Like you probably have a pretty generic idea of like a picnic table somewhere in a park, you know, and you know what that object is and there's some variation in it, but you probably don't remember like learning what a picnic table is. And maybe you have some specific episodic memories around a picnic table, but that doesn't necessarily, that's not required for your knowledge of, of what those two words mean together. Episodic memories are really specific memories. They can be really specific and they are, are, Defined as being situated in a time and a place. And I was really excited when I was reading the substitution chapter because when she talks about particularizing um, a moment, she actually talks about situating them. In time and place, which is exactly what an episodic memory is. And one huge uh, subcategory of episodic memory is autobiographical memory. And so when you said we need to personalize and particularize, those are the two elements so it has to have happened to you and it has to be situated in a time and place. And episodic memory is kind of fascinating from a neuroscience perspective because it's actually one of the only psychological processes that is actually quite specifically bound to a very particular part of the brain. It is very specifically localized in the hippocampus, or we actually have two, one on either side of our head, so the hippocampi. And individuals who don't have functioning hippocampi cannot lay down new episodic memories. They cannot encode new episodic memories. So this was discovered with a neurological patient several decades ago who had um, pretty severe um, surgery to the medial temporal lobe, which is where the hippocampi live. And uh, he could no longer form new autobiographical memories. He retained his old ones, which I'll talk about why that happens in just a second, but he couldn't, even to the point where like doctors came in every day and he would reach out his hand and introduce him. Self, to the doctors every single day he didn't recognize mm-hmm. their face didn't recognize where he was they had to remind him where he was um, you know really sad things like he thought his parents were still alive for many many years even after they had passed away because he didn't have he couldn't update that memory that they were no longer living um, so yeah so the hippocampus basically uh, is responsible for for laying down those episodic memories and uh, there's an awesome process called consolidation which is basically how our brain filters through And I was going to say, decides, your brain doesn't really decide, although I guess at some level it does, Um, Mm. but decides what of our experiences actually get stored as as an episodic memory. So very few people have perfect memory of everything that's ever happened to them. Uh Those people are really fascinating. Uh Do they exist? They they do exist. And they're actually quite tortured. Like they have so much memory that they don't know what to do with it. Mm. A lot of them develop something very similar to OCD where they're like sorting through their memories all the time and like identifying common features in them. Um, But most people, thankfully, are not burdened by remembering everything that happens to them. And so through this process of memory consolidation, which occurs during slow-wave sleep, basically your hippocampus takes all of the different features, right, or these trace elements of these episodes, right? So where you were, what was happening, who was there, the colors that were there, the smells, the sights, the sounds, and it binds them all together. It basically says these things go together. They were all part of this one episode, and during consolidation, the, the hippocampus sends out these coordinated neural messages to say these all go together, these all go together. And after they've been consolidated, they actually no longer require the hippocampus in order to activate them. But any one of these trace elements can activate all the rest of them. So there are all of these hooks or traces or, you know, access points into the memory where if there's a really particular color of pink balloon that was at a birthday party that you were at when you were eight, seeing that color again might make you remember the music that was playing or the, you know, hairstyle that was trendy, yeah. you know, that, that a bunch of people were, were wearing at that party or the smell of the grass in the backyard or whatever was going on. And when
2: you describe this to me, I have this picture of um, tying up a, a, a bag full of marbles or things. Yeah tangible balls or yeah. th- which are all the different aspects and then the what is what is what is happening in the brain again to sort of to tie it all up?
0: It's really That's- complicated, but again, the hippocampus coordinates for a short term. So if you okay. think about it like a bag in a net, f- let's yes. think about like a net bag full of marbles. Yeah. The hippocampus holds it together and basically sends out pulses throughout the whole bag that says, hey, marbles, you can all stick together even after I go. And after the memory has been consolidated, the net falls away and the marbles are still clustered is a good analogy wow. for it. That's not exactly how it works in the brain. Like those things don't move closer together, but they become connected, structurally. Mm -hmm. So again, so that if you tap into any one marble, the rest of them light up metaphorically. Definitely not literally. Brains don't light up. (laughs) Side pet peeve (laughs) about anybody talking about brains lighting up. Can I connect this to an acting exercise I do
2: in my acting one class? So I teach an introductory acting class. I love it. Um, And one of my favorite exercises is called the river story, which I learned from my teacher, Kristen Linklater in grad school. And I ask the students. There's first a visualization exercise to prepare, and then they they sort of perform um, what they've prepared. They visualize. Um events, really emotionally charged, significant events in their life. And I asked them to f- locate four of them. And each time that we do this, I ask them to, with their breath, right? They're just lying on the ground as they're remembering them. But with their breath, they are remembering things you just mentioned, which is all the trace details, trace yeah. elements, um, the particulars, right? They're particularizing the memory. So they're remembering who was there with them, environment, where they were, And then I go through all the senses. What are you hearing? What words? What dialogue? Is there a monologue going on? Are people singing? Are you hearing ambient sounds like birds or people cheering or the waves? Um, What you are seeing, of course, and seeing is colors and textures and objects and depth and all of that. Um, And then, you know, what you might touch or physically feel. um, And then what you are tasting or smelling. And then also the mood, the mood or the color, right, of this event. So that's, and I'm sure we could add even more details. Totally. And then, and then they they find a way. Then, in very short, up to a minute long. Minute is a maximum. They are presenting each of these four. Maybe using a song. Maybe using a narrative monologue. Uh, maybe using dialogue. Maybe just using six words. So that's it in a nutshell. Now, the objective of this river story. There are a bunch of them. The one I usually focus on is I'm getting you to bring you on stage as much as possible. And that's what the start of the substitution chapter is about, which is, it's not about losing, she goes, ah, it's not about losing yourself in the character, it's about finding yourself and finding this balance of your memories plus character. But the other thing that I, I want to actually drive home in my classes more is this idea of per- transferring this then to a character's life and being extremely particular about every single aspect of that life and not just including the life on stage but the pre-beat, the backstory, yeah. the history of this character.
0: Yeah, and it's I think it's really telling that you do that um – exercise or really wise, I should say, that you do that exercise um, where you having having them recall an emotional memory because, the, like I said before, the consolidation process is in some ways a filter, right? It's a filter of what we experience in terms of what gets stored in long-term memory. And one of the things that increases the likelihood that something makes it through that filter is emotion. So when things are highly emotionally arousing, literally during consolidation, I talked about the amygdala last episode, I think very briefly, the amygdala sits right on top of and just in front of the hippocampus, and it literally like squirts neurotransmitters onto the hippocampus that goes, remember these things, right? Like these things are important. These things were highly um, emotional, highly arousing, highly important. And so that's one of the most reliable ways to increase consolidation is if something is emotionally meaningful. Yeah. So I feel like we've
2: we've talked maybe thoroughly enough about number two, the deep dive, but I do want to speak about the danger inherent in this. Um, which is y- you might we are discouraging you from choosing a memory or choosing an aspect of your life to substitute for an objective, for a character, for a relationship, et cetera. That is simply too difficult for you, too traumatic, perhaps. Yeah. i ha- I have a personal example, actually, I want to speak to.
0: Are you sure? Yeah, briefly.
2: Okay. Um, is I was doing some movement training with a fabulous teacher named Charlie Oates a couple months ago. was with a big group and he was having us create a very devising each our own sort of solo performance about a thing that happened to us, a story we had from our our life that involved three characters. Mm -hmm. And um, so I chose something um, uh, that involved my father and me and my father passed away and I was trying to, he passed away a little over a year ago, I was trying to embody my father uh, with his um, neurological disease. Wow! (laughs) And I began to do, and I knew this was perhaps dangerous or that it wouldn't work. I was happy to begin to try it. And I tried to do the, the movement exercise that Charlie had asked us to do for each of these, which is in some ways to pan through, to scan through your body. And my body stopped. It didn't stop like I froze, but I simply, my yep. brain, my imagination, my body refused to go there. And I thought, okay, we're moving yep. on. Like, I'm not, this is not the story. I'm not going to, I'm yeah. going to tell. I'm going to find something else. I didn't know that until I tried it. Yeah. Um, and I and feel fine talking about it here, but I. it was... I could not go there.
0: Yeah. And not everyone will feel that like breaks, right? Like for some people, it'll actually open the floodgates. And I'm sure we've all been in acting classes (laughs) or perhaps even seen people perform who've gone too far. And then they're just, it's just a sob fest about, and it's, you can, you can almost tell it's not quite appropriate to the character and the scene and, and right. all of that. And it's funny. My, so my husband is an actor and a director and he and I actually used to um, be critics around town. We had yeah. our own website. And so one of the things he used to say quite frequently, <laughs> not quite frequently, but one of his sort of favorite shorthands when we had seen something was that sometimes something was funny for the wrong reasons. Yes. Right. So a lot of times um, he was referring to like a cheap joke. Right. So um, like, like, a really easy way to be funny for the wrong reasons is when you just throw in an anachronism to a show just to like pander to an audience, right? right? So you're doing a show in Littleton and then you make some comment about like the street you're on in Littleton and it doesn't have any... Like some shows that works really well and is funny, mm-hmm. but some it's just random. And so mm-hmm. it's like, it takes you out of the play and mm-hmm. then you laugh and then it brings you back into the play. Mm-hmm. So I'd be like that's the emotional version of substitution yeah. for the wrong reasons, I guess. <laughs> or like going too far. And I think yeah. sometimes... You can start for the right reasons, right? Like you can be like, I really think this character needs to feel despair. And so I need to open up this time when I was, I felt helpless and despairing, but maybe it opens up another can of, you know, of insecurity, perhaps I'm actually reminded, um, when I was in college, I had to do one of these exercises, really similar exercise where I had to recreate something that happened to me in my own life. And it was supposed to be highly emotional, and I, I had a very blessed, privileged childhood. I do not have a lot of highly emotional things that happened to <laughs> so how <laughs> self-indulgent is this my memory, my highly emotional memory was not getting cast in the in the part I wanted to sure, in high sure. school but that's real and I am not kidding you, I went to go ask the director like why you didn't cast me and I flopped <laughs> on the ground crying <laughs> to him about, you did? Well, of course <laughs> I was so upset and I thought my life would be over that I didn't get this part and it was my only chance and so I recreated this in my um, in my acting class in college, but it you know that was about so many other things. Yeah, and so I don't know how useful that would have been in any real scene. And the, the exercise wasn't to put it in a scene, but right. like it was it was so. And, and part of it was the experience, the emotion itself was so self-indulgent, right? It wasn't about like my – I didn't have like a tortured relationship with the director. You know, I didn't have like a history of being like shunned for other things. Like it just was like I wanted this thing and I didn't get it. And I, and I was like, why am I not good enough?
2: Yeah, and I think when you're trying to find as ifs – uh, which are substitutions for
0: objectives, as much as possible you want them to be in relationship with someone yeah. else. Just like objectives are best if they're it, wanting other, pers- exactly. other people to do it. That's such a great rule of thumb. Yeah, and good. Um, two things, that made me think of two things.
2: Uh, sometimes I see performances where... Where I'm just mixed about the performance, I feel like the actor is doing so much right, yeah. or we might say emotionally, yeah, yeah, it feels it feels mostly right, and yet something is wrong. Like there's something mm. about the circumstance. Circumstance of what this character is using that or this actor is using that just feels slightly off, and I think that it might be in certain cases where the substitution, the as if that maybe they're using for that particular s- situation is just slightly off. Yeah. The other thing I want to say is these 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 memories that we're talking about can be fictionalized, and this comes off a little bit maybe from episodic mm-hmm. memory, which is um, Practical Handbook for the Actor in their chapter two of analyzing a scene have the most. Re- Seemingly ridiculous as if situations, and I used to make fun of them, and now I realize they're actually quite valuable. So, for example, if you're playing Stanley Kowalski in *Streetcar Named Desire*, and you're—they list a bunch of different objectives—and you want your beautiful wife Stella to come back to you, right? You are begging someone's forgiving forgiveness, or another way that they say it is, you're 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 righting a wrong, or you're trying to ha- uh, clear up a misunderstanding, mm-hmm. right? They're as if is absurd, which is something like, it's as if I were nude. (laughs) in the hot tub with my friend's girlfriend and he walks in on me, on us, and I have to explain that we weren't fooling around. So you read that and you're like, this has nothing to do. We streak our name desire. I I could count on one hand the number. No. (laughs) (laughs) How many times has that happened? I would have very little pocket change. But here's the scoop. Either that event happened to that person who's playing Stanley or he has a friend with a girlfriend, right? And he's imagining, he's fictionalizing. So maybe the event didn't happen, yeah. But there's enough rooted in epi- there's enough rooted. I won't say episodic memory in his real life, yeah. Right? There is a hot tub, there is a best friend, and there is a girlfriend. But maybe this event never actually happened. That that as if is hot enough. It kind of gets him working yeah. in that way. So the point yeah. I sort of want to drive home is an as if does not have to be one hundred percent real to you.
0: Right. And it, it, what's interesting about that as well is that there's actually neurobiologically an overlap, pretty strong overlap in the parts of the brain that handle memory and the parts that handle imagination. And so again, the more specific and particularized that imagined experience is, the more your brain actually doesn't necessarily distinguish between that having happened and not. And so it, there might be some people who are better At the imaginary part of things than others, right? But the more generic your imagination... So to use my birthday party example, if you're like, oh, imagine about a birthday party and you just picture this like floating grassy knoll in space with like generic banners and like faceless kids and like that's not going to help you. But if you have this fantasy birthday party you always wanted when you were a child and you've thought about it and made it really specific that can really serve, you know?
2: I love that. And we have very specific fantasies. I mean, this is a very traditional sort of gendered way, but... Um, some people, uh, women especially, probably have very specific fantasies about sort of their wedding day, yeah. right? Yeah. I'm trying to think of a less gendered example, but that's sure. something that hasn't happened, may never happen for some of these women, right? And yet there's, I know what my dress is going to look like, I know exactly where I'm getting married, I know what my husband will look like, even right. though I've never met him, I know what the <laughs> ring looks like, I know what the flower girl, I know how I'm going to feel, I know what music is going yeah. to, you know, all your five senses are activated, even totally. though this thing has never happened to you.
0: On a darker note, I have this like negative, it's not quite a fantasy, but it's an imagined situation that unfortunately in this day and age, you know, so both Anne and I have um, children who, when Anne's children were young, were younger, went to the same on-campus daycare yeah. where mine currently goes. And there's a decently busy street that goes along the back of the daycare. Um, and I've sometimes had this like uncomfortable fantasy because I always go around the block mm-hmm. when I drop her off to, to go straight to, to my office. Um of like, what if there's an active shooter situation? Mm-hmm. Cause there's windows just all along mm-hmm. the side of the daycare. And I have like I've several times, almost mm-hmm. every time I drive by, I have this fancy of what if there is a man shooting at the mm-hmm. windows and I'm like, and then I plow my car into him and knock him yeah. over and like you know what I mean? And it's not like, oh, I saved the day, but it's just one of those like I don't know, like the first time it popped into my head, it just was like this kind of mama bear like instinct that I had and it made me feel a little bit better about the generic fear of having somebody, having there be a shooter somewhere where I am or my children are. So to me, that's an excellent example of... emotion,
2: fear, yeah, right? Now, I don't know, maybe it then goes back to actually have an image of active shooter. But let's say we start with the emotion. The emotion then gets translated into something active, yeah. which is if I feel this way or if this event is happening, I will do this yeah. thing. I love that. Um, can we both talk? We've You have an example of not knowing. Can you talk about you and your twin and
0: not knowing whose memory is what? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, so, um, and this actually relates a little bit too, so I I have a twin sister, her name is Talery. she's absolutely incredible and she'll probably be a guest at some point because she is very knowledgeable um, about theater for youth as well as about access in theater and uh, you know, we're twins. We have a lot of really similar experiences growing up. My mom did a great job of even from an early age trying to give us our own space for at least like a few hours a day. Um, But a lot of our memories happen in the same time and place to the point where I actually, there are some memories I have that I don't remember who they happened to. Mm. So for the longest time, my hottest memory of embarrassment Mm -hmm. actually came from this bizarre experience I had when we were in an airport. We had just flown somewhere as a family. And we had flown to Hawaii, I remember, because it was very warm. And we had come from a cold place, so we were, like, overdressed for the plane and everything. And we were starving. Like, we had just gotten off the airplane. We were waiting for, like, Dad to go get the rental car to come pick us up. And there was, like, a vending machine with candy in it. And, of course, my mom wouldn't buy us the candy. But we were, like, complaining very loudly that we didn't have any candy. And one of us, I honestly could not tell you who to this Mm. day, Um, was, was kind of closer to this man sitting on a bench who was a total stranger to us, but he just heard us complaining louder and louder about not having candy. And he very nicely either like went up and got something from the machine or maybe he had it for himself and he offered us a piece of whatever he was eating. So he was literally a stranger with candy. Right. And like one of us, like, I don't even know if we reached for it or if we just were thinking about it. And my mom was like, girls like whoever it was my mom like yelled at us and it was instantly like this you know you know the rule and like it was so embarrassing she said it out loud and um at least in my mind like i remember he felt bad because he didn't even think that that was like a not okay thing to do right and for years and years i actually could use this in a scene if i needed to feel really embarrassed and at some point it lost its potency um but I couldn't tell you. If you paid me $100, yeah. I couldn't tell you whether it was me or my sister who and reached my, out for the candy.
2: My mom and her best friend who have been friends since before I was born, so over 40 <laughs> years, um, also have the same thing where yeah. they, uh, Miriam might be saying some story and my mom will go, no, 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 that happened to me. And Miriam's like, no, I think <laughs> I think that actually happened to me. Um, and I think a way I'm just, again, always sort of obsessively bringing it back to an acting class maybe you and your character are twins in that way. Like, how Hmm. can you marry
0: Hmm. memory
2: so that you almost to some ways in a good way, in a healthy way, maybe forget if you're working with this substitution or this, you're working with these trace elements, these details, right, at any given particular moment, you might forget how much it actually happened to you, the actor, and how much you are imagining happened to the character and how much you're maybe imagining happened to you so that it becomes this healthy, not weird you know, not pathological blend of yeah. mm, sort of these threads that you're weaving together, yeah. which is the way Udo Hagen talks about it.
0: Which sort of brings us to the third step, right, of of once you've done the deep dive into your memory is how do you bring it back to the scene that you're in? And I think she does a really great job of talking about transferring the essence of, of the memory yeah. into the scene. And, um she had a phrase that I thought was really nice, which was your job is to use the past to make the present real. Yes, I love that. And that's that's the sort of goal. So I think it is this sort of interweaving and um, the really freaky thing I actually think is, so I described this consolidation um, thing that happened when you put the marbles in the bag and then it strengthens the connections between them. There's actually a process called reconsolidation. And what that is is every time you open up that memory, every time you relive that memory, Um, the net comes back, right? And there's an opportunity to actually add or take away marbles from that group, right? So every time you reopen an old memory, it becomes vulnerable again. And you can re-save it. It's almost like a save as. And so if if your goal is to just go back and open up the memory and close it again, Mm -hmm. in theory, you could make no changes to it. But our memories are biased, right? And we and we always infuse some aspects of our present experience into it. And so if you use the exact same memory over and over again mm-hmm. in this really literal like deep dive opened up, if you did that, then actually there are elements of which stage you're on, the other actors, the director, your current bodily sensations that are happening um, that get refolded into the memory. And sure. so actually the way that memory is stored, it becomes part old memory and part what you're using it for on it's stage wild. through reconsolidation. It's really freaky. And you can take advantage of this fact actually to purposefully decrease the potency of traumatic memories, right? So if you have traumatic memories, if you reopen them in a very safe space, yeah. you can basically do this save as reconsolidace- reconsolidation procedure in order to bind some elements that indicate safety and yeah. and and calm, <sighs> and then it actually makes the traumatic memory a little bit less potent over time. It's a really risky because mm-hmm. you can imagine if you if you cannot feel safe, you're just opening it up, opening up the can of worms. You feel emotional all over again, and then right. you're saving as a just as bad or maybe even worse. So it's a really right. really you have to to be very confident that it's a safe environment.
2: So so I believe very strongly that there is no danger in becoming your character, right? People I think who are new to acting or are inexperienced with acting um, maybe think, oh gosh, how do you, you know, you're going to play this serial killer, right? How that's going to infect you in some negative way. For the most part, that doesn't happen. However, I have a friend who's worked in the soap opera business as a producer and she has admitted that in the cases where someone plays the same soap opera character... (laughs) their whole lives so from you know maybe they start at 18 or 20 or 25 and they're still playing literally the same role at 70 there's wow. so much marriage between yeah. actor and character, that the actor actually does begin to take on elements ah. of that character, which it can be kind of ugly sometimes. Sure. Um but well, there's w- also
0: a frequency thing, like you're doing it almost every day. Right. Well, and there's probably a there's like a non-independence <laughs> between the actor and, and write and like the writers start to write for the actor yes, a little bit too, I'm sure. right? Like I'm there's sure. all sorts of great stories about actors who have actually like gone to intervene and like told the writers, like, please write, write this thing. Right. And to me, I think I'm this sure. is what happens to my character character. character next and some writers are friendly to that and some are like get out of my office Um, (laughs) but um but and there's also not like random assignment of performer to character right like there are certain there are certain archetypes and there are certain types we can talk about casting in a few in a few (laughs) weeks um where like you almost think like even if you're cast at 18 Mm -hmm. there might be a limited number of, like, types of adults that person would become anyway. Right. So, like, some of that might totally be due to the experience of being that character, but some of it might be some sort of, like, inherent synergy between the type of person you would cast for that role and... You know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm not saying it's not a thing. Right. I'm not saying it's right. not because of some of the, some of the substitution of the dropping in and like all of that marriage, but yeah. there are a few other factors too, casting and writing and, and all of those sorts of things that, that makes that make it more likely for those two things to become even more similar as, as people get older. I think
2: casting is its own episode. It totally <laughs> is. its own There's episode. so
0: much to talk about around
2: mm-hmm. that. Um, so just going back to number three, which I love, which you introduced, um, this idea of transferring it back, I I think I don't always, I'm going to be totally honest, I don't know if I always do this um, as fully or as thoroughly as I can, mm. um, both in Practical Handbook and Uta Hagen, I'm sure in some other reading I'm taking a quote from one of her two books, finding the source of the transference or the, the source of the substitution is not an end in itself. A substitution is incomplete until the original source has been become synonymous with mm. the material in the play. That's actually a useful way of looking at it. The way I sometimes look at it, which, doesn't, which makes me feel like a failure is you have to fully disregard. You have to discard and almost forget the as if or forget huh. the substitution. Because the, the the point there, the healthy, the useful aspect of that is there are going to be elements of that as if that have nothing to do, that aren't helpful, that have nothing to do with the circumstances. Yeah. So for example, my hot tub with the girlfriend scenario taking place in uh, 2018 is not useful if I'm playing Stanley in the you know, mid-40s. I'm trying to remember when that was published, <laughs> right? So there might be aspects, like the hot tub itself is not useful, right? So, But what, what I sometimes find myself doing is... I might still have the memory, say I'm speaking to a scene partner who is playing someone I love, a friend, a Mm -hmm. very, very close friend. And I am using, and maybe that actor may or may not be a close friend, right? It's helpful if they are. Say they're not. I then am am remembering and using my feelings towards some of my closest friends, right? I sometimes have those people... in my brain yeah. and in my mind's eye when i'm playing the yeah. scene the most perfect completion of a substitution would be that you actually are t- mm. in a way not even thinking about them but i think how can i not be thinking about them they yeah. are the they're the thing that creates the fire and then actually yeah. connects me correctly to the scene partner so i'm i'm kind of a failure in that but i but i also want to sort of gently disagree with the reading that says yeah. you have
0: to fully forget Sure, and it the probably the memory the substitution. It probably naturally happens. Like, I'd be curious. I'd be curious to know whether that's more likely to happen over like long runs. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think when you have three, four, right. or five. Even how long is CSF? Like, how long is the Shakespeare Festival? Uh, it's in town? over. It's
2: actually, you might be performing for two months, but mm-hmm. there's only 14, 15 shows. Yeah. yeah, but still, there's but that time in between the shows is significant. That is
0: that that's that's totally true. But I, I guess I I wonder if the more time you actually. Sure are having that scene that the scene, you know what I mean? Like that maybe it it, it sort of rests more over the the longer run. I completely agree with that. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. I had two questions for you about like, and this is, I mean, maybe this is as a director, but also, but more as an actor. So one of them is, okay, um, I loved when she – and you were – when Uta Hagen was talking about this and you were talking about this too about it's not just the overall objective and experience but every single aspect like the props and all of that. So like how do you – if you think about like every single thing on stage having meaning to the character, how do you – What's your process for, like, not having those things in hand until tech? Like, do you feel mm. like tech helps you? Do you feel like yes. there's a whole new wave of work to do at yes. tech? Yes, Are, Do you think it would be better if you got those objects ahead of time? Yes, oh, all, all of, of those people. things, but they don't always come.
2: So Uta Hagen is a stickler for props. She feels like you should be having the performance prop mm. in rehearsal. But that just isn't real life. I mean, a professional theater is going to, at the very least, have rehearsal props on day one. Yeah. So they're usually... they'll have a substitution, right? They'll have a thing that works because the other thing either is not ready, it's not been made, or perhaps it's so delicate that they want to save it till tech or right before tech. Um, So, yeah, so for example, my most recent performance was with Colorado Shakespeare Festival. This is a great example because one of their theaters is outside. Mm -hmm. So you are in a rehearsal room, a big room, and the, the dimensions of the stage are taped out, but you're in a place with four walls right? That's inside and has yeah. a ceiling. Then all of a sudden you're going outside to a thousand seat house. That is so outside. I mean, there are, like there is getting set behind on, like, you. You must
0: get rained on like 20% of the time. Yeah. It's great.
2: <laughs> there is a building behind you, but it's 50 feet away. Yeah. And then you are behind, you are nestled within this U shaped building, but yeah. those walls, I'm not great with dimensions. They're far away from you. You do not feel like you are in a room. No. So you are making, you have to make spatial adjustments. Yeah that work for you, that remain tools that ground you in the scene that maybe you didn't have right. in the rehearsal room. Yeah. And
0: that's, I mean, again, I, I don't think I emphasize this quite enough, or maybe I, I didn't actually make this point. Is So one of the things that's really interesting about the hippocampus being responsible for this memory binding is that the hippocampus cares a ton about spatial relationships. Yes. And it cares a ton about time, right? So the, the, <laughs> To me,
2: that's all acting is, is yeah. like your relationship to time and space. Yeah. yeah. And that's
0: what the hippocampus <laughs> does. You know, That's and so, so cool. yeah and, and 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 so there are probably like, I mean, taping things out helps a lot and and different yes. people's hippocampi are more responsive to relative spatial relationships versus um what's the opposite of relative objective? Uh-huh. Um, you know, it's like the difference between people navigating by north south, sure. you know, east west versus people navigating by like when you get to the pink building turn mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. And so that taping probably helps a lot with relative spatial relationships, but it's really bad with the objective. Yes. External spatial yeah. relationships. And and not to mention that if you're performing over 2 months, even the outside changes. Yeah. Right? Like the sun sets at a different time during each performance, yeah. right?
2: Yes, it's amazing. So in June, the sun is setting later than yeah. by the time you get to August and the lights are adjusted. Yeah, totally. and and when you do most of the time, you do an evening performance. So you don't, it's easy to, you're using the audience and you're performing for the audience, but you're not seeing the details of their faces. And then a matinee, which starts at 6.30 <laughs> of this moment of, oh, there's all these people out there. How do I work with them? So that adjustment, the first time a matinee happens is always, um, can be super weird Uta Hagen has this amazing uh, quote, which I'll, which I'll speak right now. I've completed the transference or the substitution by finding the behavior. I have used the past to make the present real, which is a quote that we're hearing this quote a couple times. times. Wow, we this. both it's independently beautiful.
0: pulled it out. I love it.
2: And I think that's a very useful way for me to know when I fulfilled the substitution. And what she does is she does this really cool exercise um, in her class where it's her meeting uh, one of her students uh, in the class one of her students but she changes who that person is so say it's a super high status actor she's her 18-year-old yeah. self right and she meets this um this very famous actor she gets to work with <laughs> how she says hi to him if she meets him accidentally on the street in new york is going to affect her behavior she might even bow or curtsy cuz she just yeah. feels deferential towards him she might have a hard time looking him in the eyes that's the behavior right? she's found the behavior of meeting this person, of this relationship. And then the second one might be um, like a a shitty boyfriend, ex-boyfriend of her daughters. Now how she treats that guy because Mm -hmm. she's higher status, he's younger, she doesn't really like him, is going to affect her behavior differently. Um, And then finally, maybe like an old friend who you just run into on the street, that behavior, right, Mm -hmm. is the information. That's step three of the substitution. And then you can forget the the person you are imagining in that way.
0: Right. And that's a lovely cap. And again, I think really parallel to our first episode where we talk about, you know, some things are means and some things are ends. And so if your goal is to dwell in your emotional state, then you're always just going to be diving into the emotion to get that emotion back. And you you can't leave it. You're afraid to leave it because then the emotion will go away. But if your goal yeah. is to really take on the perspective of the character, the behavior is the end point and the emotion is part of the journey to get to the behavior. Yes. And that's how the behavior seems more natural. If you go straight to the behavior, it becomes stereotyped and unrealistic and, and you know gestury. Um, right. But that 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 midpoint of reliving the emotion yeah. is, is what you need to get to. So I had one other question for yeah, you as please. a performer, which is Do you feel like in your everyday life, when something starts to happen to you, do you ever tag it with like, I should use this later in a scene? (laughs) What is that that like? (laughs) Like, does it take away yes. from your, like, <laughs> real life living? Yeah, it's not that I go,
2: oh, <laughs> it's not that I go, oh, tag it. Like, I'm going to use this when I work on Queen Margaret. Like, uh, well, no, I do that too, actually.
1: <laughs> I in, when
2: I'm inside an experience that's very mm-hmm. emotional, that feels significant, that mm-hmm. feels hot, right? Um, that feels important. I am experiencing it subjectively. I'm experiencing it in the present subjectively. And I am also experiencing it objectively like a teacher, student, actor. And that's weird.
0: That is weird.
2: But it also is useful. I love that question. I need to come up with questions for you. (laughs) Um, It's also useful then to allow the subjective experience to be okay. Yeah. It's as it's as if my relationship maybe this is just because I'm getting older. My relationship to the subjective yeah. intense emotional experience has a little bit of objectivity, yeah. which is this is valuable, this is important. Yeah. Don't don't push this down. Don't make yeah. it go away before it needs to.
0: And that's part of acceptance of your emotions. Yeah. And it might maybe it's just another rationale for acceptance, right? Like so we'll talk about this a lot more. We have an upcoming episode on presence and mindfulness and acceptance is a huge part of that. But I think one, you know, a lot of times acceptance um, is something like it's okay to be feeling this. It's natural. You know, my, my brain and body are doing what they need to do to deal with this situation. It's natural that I feel this way. But maybe actors who are pretty aware of this have another yeah. way to accept their emotions, which is this might be shitty right now. Yep. But I can use this in the future. Yeah. Or, you know what I mean? Or that there's a higher purpose to which this. Which is perverse in some ways. It but, is a little bit. also useful. And you can imagine that being exaggerated <laughs> in like a waiting for government kind of way. Totally. right like yeah. with someone just <laughs> sobbing and being like don't worry i'll
2: use this and a fellow <laughs> yeah and actors have this like actor speak where they they you know good actors are very authentic real people who know how to connect to others usually and have empathy but we also like to sort of as parodies of ourselves be over dramatic like right. hello katuri right. how are you well, well, and we're making fun of ourselves but it also is is also a way of sort of
0: Connecting to the other yeah. person, the and you way. can imagine again that there being um, you, what you describe as of, of being in the subjective experience and having the objective, um, you know, perspective. It's to me sounds ex- extremely healthy. You could imagine though it, what if the objective voice says like lean into this do more. You know what I mean? Like mm. make this even. Oh, I'm sure you know, some people you, th- do this that. This will be more useful if you if you even Yeah, I go think deeper.
2: I'm to some extent guilty of that. Yeah. Um I don't I don't think I I when that happens I tend to shush that voice, yeah. but I
0: think that voice has come up. Oh, interesting. Which is embarrassing. I um, think when I was younger I used to lean into Emotional experiences more because yeah. and it wasn't always like I'll use this for acting, yeah. <laughs> but um, it just was pleasurable to me to feel extreme emotions. Sure. Like I've never been like a risk taker daredevil like type person, but just yeah. like when I started to feel sad, I let myself feel really sad. And yeah. I used to, I used to have like a spot in college I would go to like yeah. cry and feel sorry for myself. Yeah,
2: I'm, I'm thinking about.
0: Yeah, I'm. I'm thinking about
2: just all these this beautiful marriage that we're talking about, which is a new idea for us in terms of how we talk about it. This marriage of sort of your using your real episodic mm-hmm. memory, using almost imagination to embellish or to add detail or to add useful detail to that memory. Yeah. Right. The circumstances. So those are two separate things. The circumstances that the text gives you, right? That the playwright has given you. Number three. And finally, what is actually happening in the rehearsal in real time Mm. and space or in the performance with you and your scene partner. Mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking last time, you know, last summer when I was performing, all of those things impacted me. It's not any one thing. So you're pulling useful information from all these things. Um, I wanted to... I wanted to speak to one more thing that I made a note of, um, and this is this has happened in my acting classes. Sometimes as actors, it happens to me too, where we struggle to connect to a, a certain moment or a certain aspect, a certain trace element of the character. Mm. Um, I might be drawn to this character's sense of adventure, but then I think, oh my God, she's such a bitch to her best friend. <laughs> Why would she behave this mm. way, right? But I have had fr- um, friends, I've had uh, students in my class struggle to empathize fully, to connect fully to character. Yeah. And one example is I had a student playing um, Lewis in Angels in America, and um, it, he was struggling. He said, I've never, <laughs> I've never been in this situation. Lewis is, is partnered with Pryor, who has full-blown AIDS, mm-hmm. and Lewis is freaking out and wants to run away. Um, and doesn't really know how to both sort of take care of himself and take care of his partner because scary things are happening. And my students said, um, you know, I've never been in this situation where I'm in this very specific literal situation trying to take care of a partner who's dying. Yeah which is a great question. If you struggle with that, you're simply taking the moment to literally, so this goes back to Othello and Desdemona. We don't think you're ever in this situation. You just have to pan back and find a moment where you were afraid, you were frightened about what you might do. In the case of Lewis, I might just leave my partner. I might just just abandon him. Or you're just frightened for someone, right? That is something we all have felt. Mm -hmm. So it's that idea, I'm trying to think of a verb better than panning out, but the idea of generalizing or humanizing it a moment taking it out of the little literal world and into something that yeah. you as an actor can come to terms with
0: I think again you know if you think about it in the extreme you can imagine actors like really you know searching in their everyday life for these deep emotional experiences and that can turn really unhealthy. But I also think that you know if you are currently working on a character, and maybe this is part of what goes on in those soap opera characters, that if right. you're working on a character, you're more attuned to things that happen in your everyday life that yes. you can feed that. Yes, you know what I mean. And yes. so even though you are not a mean, violent person, no. you might like just notice times in the day where you feel really angry, mm-hmm. right? And you mm-hmm. really like want to shake somebody, mm-hmm. even though you never, never would, mm-hmm. and that you might have just allowed those to to to, to pass by you by. Before, but mm-hmm. because you are tr- you are searching through your life for these things, mm-hmm. but it's not as though you're feeding anger, right? You're just taking a moment, exactly. you know, When when you are sitting in traffic and the person next to you has been in the straight lane yeah. and then they decide suddenly they're going to turn left and stall you there for three more you right. know, cycles right. of the light, right. when you're like, right? Just want to pound on the horn. Right. It's <laughs> you know? it's a tool. Yeah. So, I mean, you're
2: it's it's a tool that you're using to play the role better. I have one more thing I want to briefly talk about. Wonderful. I know about almost nothing about Buddhism, but I've been thinking about it a lot uh, and learning a little bit, mostly through podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) And the little I know is this idea of Mm -hmm. non-attachment, which which as a very smart person said to me, it's not really a realistic way to live your life. Like mm-hmm. one wants, we're social people. I'm a social person. I want to have attachments and relationships with people and things and events. Um, and also this idea of non-judgment, which is very useful. But going back to the attachment, in some ways acting technique is the opposite of Buddhism. Yeah. So if if this aspect of Buddhism is in order to sort of live life with less stress, with less anxiety, with less just uh, acceptance, I guess. This idea of disattaching or, or disentangling yourself from events and people is useful. But uh, g- very b- speaking very generally, acting is the opposite. You, mm-hmm. are, you're, you are finding ways for your character. Okay, you are attaching yourself. You are entangling yourself. You're marrying yourself to character. In all these ways that we've yeah. articulated, and the character, because it is drama, and there is conflict, and there are objectives and obstacles, is entangled with the other characters on stage. Is entangled with the given circumstances. That those circumstances aren't just objective; they also are subjective. You have opinions about them. Totally. And that's I found that useful to think about.
0: I think that's I think that's a really good way of saying it. And is there a word for somebody who's reached like the highest highest stage of enlightenment in Buddhism? Yeah, there must. I know be, be, even less than Anne
2: yeah uh i'll f- track that down for you but there's that idea of being fully enlightened which is essentially impossible for basically right. everyone
0: but it, it occurs to me that if you think about all of the things that goes into good theater that watching a character who would achieve that would be supremely uninteresting it's so boring right? like imagine somebody who in every well for two reasons right like just one like there's no drama right there's no conflict there's right. no no like, obstacle there's no obstacle. But also, like, it would be really hard to tell the difference between that and bad acting. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) Like, someone comes in and they're like, you know, sir, your wife has just died and so did the child, right? And he's just like, "Mm -hmm." Uh mm-hmm. That's okay. (laughs) That would be a horrible scene. (laughs) That would be
2: awful. So, in
0: some ways maybe almost all characters and maybe almost all interesting characters are pretty unenlightened people because they they do have all of these attachments and that's what what drives them maybe yeah. yeah. I do, that
2: said, I do think there are certain moments where I don't think every single moment on stage needs to have an obstacle. I could. There might be people who hear that and go, you're wrong. <laughs> but I think there can be moments in the sense when one achieves, maybe it's at the end of an objective when you achieve the objective, yes. or it's the end of a happy play, where, there, where all the obstacles, the play has had many obstacles, you as character have mm-hmm. had many obstacles, but you get to a particular moment, right, where you go, ah, <sighs> you yeah. have the catharsis of the obstacles kind of going away. Right. Yeah,
0: Or maybe the good play is the person who's trying to achieve enlightenment, right? Like maybe it's the yes. struggle to get there yes. is what makes the good play. Yes. And then at the end they can. Um, but yeah, just the whole way through. <laughs> Somebody who's <laughs> completely unruffled by anything. <laughs> Horrible theater.
2: Boring.
0: Boring.
2: Have we said it, everything we think we want to say? And more. Yay. Up next is our interview with actor Gareth Sachs. Thanks for listening. Hello, we want to welcome Gareth Sachs to our podcast. Gareth is a Colorado native who is glad to have returned after many years acting, coaching, and teaching in New York City. During his 23 years there, Gareth worked extensively both on and off Broadway and regionally. He played Scar in the Broadway company of The Lion King for six years, Also on Broadway, he performed in Nikolai and the Others at Lincoln Center, The Homecoming, and Heartbreak House. Off-Broadway, he's performed with the Atlantic Theater Company, the New York Shakespeare Festival, The Public, Playwrights Horizons, and the Mint Theater. And regionally, he's performed with Shakespeare Theater of New Jersey, Berkshire Theater Festival, American Conservatory Theater, The Huntington, and here in Colorado with the Denver Center Theater Company and Colorado Shakespeare Festival. Gareth currently teaches in the Denver Center Education Department, and he recently taught for Montclair State University's BFA program in New Jersey. He's an MFA from NYU and also attended Colorado College. Welcome! Hello, hello. Hello, yay! Yay! All right. Question number one on substitution. Ah. When you hear the word substitution used as an acting tool, how do you define it? What does it mean to you?
1: Um, yes, good question. I was taught to, um, use it primarily as a, an imaginative leaping off point, obviously to, if one is having trouble connecting viscerally to something one has to do, uh, to try and find a corollary, an analog, if you will, in your life. But then as quickly as possible to use that as a stepping stone to the imagination. So, um, and what tends to happen for me is I'll try and find an analog or a corollary, and note what happens to me.
0: You're gesturing to your body right now. Yes, I yeah. am. I
1: am. I'm. I'm rubbing my hands all over my body. Uh, yes. So, in I an will,
0: inappropriate okay Inappropriate. Way. Totally appropriate.
1: Always appropriate. Um, yes. Uh, Consensual. Uh, no, but to try and find where uh, the feeling rests in my body because mm. I find that to be much more potent. Than mining for a psychological explanation or, a, or a, a, an articulated um, uh, way in. Yeah. So, if I can find out what's happening, um, and it's not a question of necessarily holding on to that, but like trying to breathe through and allow that to continue while I try and make, while I move towards the imaginative circumstances the who, what, when, where, how of that specific moment. Also then relating it to the partner. I mean, one of the things I was taught to do that I always found interesting, which is because we're always doing many things at once, right? we are I'm obviously not this. This is not happening. This is a fiction. I'm on stage with you, Kateri. I'm on stage with you, Anne. And so it's you. So making the bridge between like if I need to have a substitution for wanting to be madly in love, um, then finding where that sits in my life, and then while we're working together, looking for aspects that might key into that for me. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the shape of your neck perhaps, or or you know things that are very specific to perhaps parts of that memory or that place that I've used as a touchstone. Sure. Yeah? Yeah. And to see, oh, does that do that to me? Okay, well, that's interesting. And then also not to be really rigorous about it, to really kind of follow the rabbit down the mm -hmm. hole. That's the point that I feel like that's where it gets really interesting, where you go to this kind of liminal place. Because if you try and do your whole – because I'm one of those guys that was terrible – Um, Both my parents are academics and I am not and uh, tried to be and was just miserable at it because I become rigid and, uh, uh, you know, just officious and not terribly creative. So like I would try and implement this really well and nothing would happen. Yes, But if I would set up the situation whereby, okay, let's let's use that as an entrance, like a drink me. Bottle, right? I'm going to get smaller now. And then, whoa, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to try and be led by that.
0: Yeah. And we, I mean, we talk a lot about hacks and sort of quick ways Uh to snap into things. Uh Um, And I love this idea of identifying where in your body Mm -hmm. a a particular, I'm assuming, emotional sort of response is. I think a lot of times when we talk about the ways that our, our bodies, Enact emotion. Scientists will talk about, like, you know, your entire body being a flood with, with you know, cortisol, for example, and that having, that having, an impact all over your body. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sort of, um, you know. It, it's nice because there's this like whole systems you know whole body like uh, people will use phrases like you know loosely coherent coordinated responses throughout your yeah. whole body but I actually was just recently at a conference where someone was talking about um this idea that emotions might actually uh, um live or at least activate particular parts of our body and she actually took a set of pictures that I commonly use in in uh studies right. that, that Elicit negative emotions. And she just asked people, she gave them an outline of a human body and said, Where on your body do you feel this emotion? And it was actually pretty consistent like what wow. types of pictures i mean some things are easy right like food pictures people circle their stomachs like right. dirt. but there are some other really consistent things that people felt particular emotions in particular places which is That's interesting amazing. and there are therapeutic techniques where you can keep people into feelings of safety and relaxation by having them identify where in their body they feel it in really pleasant content moments yeah so like i feel very um I feel very safe when the back of my neck and my shoulders like uh, like I love hoodies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Hoodies make me feel like warm and protected and okay. And like when I get into my bed, I pull my covers up like over yeah. my head and like over my shoulders. And so like that to me cues feelings of safety. Right. Um. So it's interesting that you t- that you talk about that. And then do you do you try to activate it through your body when you're using it to launch off from? And you're like okay. This well, one's a pit of my stomach sort of thing. Do you sort of send energy there and try to warm that up a little bit? Or like what's I, your...
1: What I try to be very loose about it. Yeah. Because that to me has also been the, the stumbling point. Also, when you get so specific with your yeah. substitution, if it's a real life substitution and you're using it on stage, I run out of gas very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Or because... I, listening I, to your... Oh, go ahead. Don't,
2: because one of you said this before, because you process it. I mean, if you're yes. working with something that's real yeah. and you're spending five or 10 or 20 minutes on right. stage with it eight times a week, right. then you're, it, it will inevitably lose its potency right. unless right. you jump to something more imagined or find another equally powerful personal fact, right?
1: Right, yeah. right. And so what I often try to do is find an abstract expression of it, mm-hmm. uh, or that has been... Sometimes that's easier to do in terms of style, what you're playing, and, um, you know... Do you if, have an
0: example of an abstract expression of...
1: Um, I would say, I mean... Uh, like, do you do
0: you visualize an image? Is it a...
1: Literally a body position.
0: Or a Like, like, like what's happening with the
1: hands. Yeah. Like, I find that if I... Even while I'm working, and I think there are two things that you said that i really relate to and it makes a great deal of sense to me and i think you're always balancing balancing this as an actor which is like, okay, how do I get myself to an open place? How do I become the vessel? And then how do I fill the vessel, right?
0: Anne said that.
1: Yeah, okay. No, well, I, this I, is a
2: language we are using in multiple yeah. episodes. So yeah, just keep, yeah. Talk,
1: keep yeah. talking. Yeah, so I may, be, <laughs> I may be piggybacking off of ideas sure, that sure. you guys have already said, which I think is great. Um, so that's what I, I tend to try and find gestures uh, that will that are open to the situation and open to information. And often for me, that's a opening up of my mm, neck and mm. chest area, often a, like a flexing, just a tiny flexing of the hands, like mm. opening up wrists, because mm. it feels vulnerable. It does. Me. It feels open. And I'm usually, you know, most of the time, I'm organizing myself to be protected. But in that situation, <laughs> I want to be alive to, you know, the imaginative... Exercise that I'm doing, but also to the feedback that I'm getting from my partner about mm-hmm. what's happening.
2: Because I am super guilty of muscling a, a, a personal memory to death. Yeah, and I know all I my. Think we all are. probably, yeah, probably any actor is. Can you give an example of? Successfully taking a a personal fact and entering into the imagined? Is it too
1: personal? Um, No, because, uh, well, I mean, I'll. Or a
2: hypothetical specific one. No,
1: I'll. I'll, (laughs) i protect myself <laughs> while well, I tell you. Yeah. We won't have an, an emotional breakdown. I'm not that
0: kind of psychologist. So I, oh, you're your own, buddy. So, all right,
1: good <laughs> enough. I'll take care of myself. Uh, yeah, I was doing a play a couple years ago uh, with Ed Sharon And, um, yeah, no, Ed Sharon, uh being uh, Jane Alexander's uh, husband, who mm-hmm. unfortunately he's passed away in the last two years. Um, but kind of a brilliant man. He directed... Her and James Earl Jones in The Great White Hope, I mean, mm-hmm. and so many things and such a storied career and a brilliant man. But also somebody who was very, uh, I think, had done a great deal of gestalt therapy and was uh, a technically proficient guy, but also somebody who understood the, the liminal space that mm-hmm. you have to be able to enter into to make things that are interesting and useful. The story is essentially the story of Frida Lawrence, D.H. Lawrence's widow, and her then lover. Lawrence has passed away. And this is on the eve of the war in uh, the Great War, World War II, um, in New Mexico. And her son from her former marriage, Monty Weekly, comes to visit the two of them in uh, Taos, New Mexico and an attempt to sort of bridge something with his mother after she left him when he was 12 with Mm -hmm. his siblings and his very English father. And uh, so the play is about this sort of reckoning between loss and trying to reorganize a relationship. And so my parents were divorced when I was four, uh, and I was asked to actually choose which parent because Mm -hmm. this is what they did at the time, I wanted to live with, which, of course, is an impossible thing to do. Um, uh, And so I chose my mother. Uh, And so what I did, to not be overly specific about it, was to mine that relationship in terms of uh, exchanges that Monty and Frida were having. And so Ed was beautiful about sort of guiding me to a safe place to sort of play that out and see what would happen. And so I would use these sort of touch points Mm -hmm. with um, Jane, but also the quality of what was happening on the other side was so so invested immediately on Jane's part. She'd already inhabited that character so much that it became very easy to, to leap to Monty and that relationship between the two it's all over there i mean it's all contained in the other person i think i mean you this is how you avoid self generating things generating emotion you, I mean, and this is what we try to i think teach is to put everything over there. that's yeah. what the objective is like how about this and I'm physically pushing my hand <laughs> because that helps me it I think it needs to be kind of that visceral engagement yeah. to then and but then you have to see what it what happened yeah did anything happen over there? ooh, that happened will that Start something in me and then you follow that through the through line of the architecture that you've been given by the writer and sometimes the, you know, the scenic constraints and the director, you know, but that's, and Jane is such a beautiful actress um, and uh, had inhabited this character that, you know, I would say things to her and things would happen on her face and, and, and her body and her demeanor and her response that you know were so clear and yeah. and were so useful because they sent the. It's like playing a great game of tennis. Yeah, yeah. you know, or or having a great volley. I don't yeah. know. I mean, that, yeah. You know, nobody's. Yeah, I mean, maybe you are trying to win, but there's something really gorgeous about. Wow, sure. wow, we're just going back and forth.
0: Well, and I love the vision of you were talking about leaping from your experience into yeah. imagination, and I love the arc of that, yeah. a, of a leap that lands with someone else, and yeah. then they send one back I think that's
1: Yeah, and I think know. that that's what you I mean. That's the to go back to what I was saying about the technique that I was taught um, at Michael Howard, which was to, to use the biographical information that's sort of possibly the analog, but then to twin it with the person who's mm-hmm. right there in front of you, you know, if you need to do that physically, or if there's a turn of phrase that somehow, you know, what? Well, oh, that's mm-hmm. wow, that's interesting, and it, different ways to hook into that energy,
2: yeah,
1: so that it starts that circuit.
2: I like the twinning, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, one thing I'm realizing is how much, no matter how good and and right the textbook is, how much it falls short of actually having experience because I'm thinking about, oh yeah, I love how Uta Hagen talks about substitution and yet it has rules to it that actually, which are useful for a young student to learn or a beginning student to learn. And then you need to kind of own it and sort of not follow all the rules and have the experience and have the experiences you've had, which are, you know, with excellent actors to then allow you to do it successfully in your own way.
1: Or to, or to or to have it articulated to you in your training that these are parameters, yeah. right? These are useful parameters. These are tools. Yeah. Do they apply all the time? Maybe not. Yeah. But you, that's the artful part of it, isn't it? I mean, or part of the artful part is, when do I need that tool? Oh, I don't need that. Yeah. It's just potent in yeah. front of me right now. And so oh. I don't need to right. use that. You
2: mentioned Michael Howard. I was going to ask you, uh-huh. what do you remember about your movement or physical training at NYU or Michael Howard? Uh,
1: almost without exception, I have to say, and I don't know if it's me, um, all of the movement stuff that I've responded to have been people who trained at Lecoq huh. in, uh, in France. And th- you guys are, may be familiar with that. i the not. The, the, the Jacques Lecoq was a physical theater Uh, kind of genius, I believe, Uh, and he started this school which was about basically looking at the history of European theater uh, and also theater archaeology. But the first two years, I believe, or at least the first year, one doesn't speak. And you go through all of these physical events of storytelling, whether it be um, mask, clown, uh more abstract sort of uh traditions um they go through commedia and then they gradually work mm. up to commedia which begins to be half mask so you start mm. speaking and um and you go from there but um so those they do a lot with um neutral mask uh which i found to be extremely uh satisfying and Why? fun <laughs> Because I like hiding. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like hiding in plain sight. I think that, that's what I like when I see uh, people acting and I forget who they are and I, that I go into that story. I think that's, for me, kind of where I'm always trying to get to. I'm always following short. But I had a class, again, with uh, Osh- uh, Yoshi Aida, who worked for Peter, Gru- uh, Peter Brook for many years. And he trained in um, no and Kabuki, and he, he told this story very briefly because he doesn't talk very much. He just has you do stuff. And he says, no, no, no. no. He never said yes the entire workshop. And you're like, oh, man. I would quit. I'm, so, well, I'm, I'm such be, a
0: baby. I need people to oh tell me I'm doing a good job. Well, it's,
1: I think it's only because my you're experience job, with good the Le people Thanks, who are also like, no. <laughs> except the French, no. So they're like.
0: No,
1: no, no, no. no. Um, but his whole point is that well, he, they're
0: pouring you wine, no. right.
1: no. so they soften the blow, <laughs> right? They're, doing, they're very civilized about it, whereas he's sort of cut and dried. Like, no, nope, that's not it. And that's oh, that might. No, that's not. It. But his point was that you when there's a scene in I believe Kabuki where uh, a young man has lost his love and he's looking at the moon and he gestures to the moon and the whole potency of that scene is, and the, the 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 goal is to make them see the moon mm. to forget you are there you are supposed to go away mm. and they're supposed to see the moon mm. and all that the moon contains from that character's point Whoa. of view which i find like i'm getting goosebumps yeah. talking about it. Such a potent thing and such a high goal,
0: yeah. but,
1: um, you know, uh, again, something that has so much space in it and room, you know, to, to fill, like, well, what is that? I mean, that's a kind of, I find that to be, a, even when I fail at it, that's a, a really fruitful place to be, like, yeah. well, what is that? What yeah. is that? How is that? You know, and so again, to use what we were talking about in terms of substitution, that's a place for me to get stepstone into a kind of liminal place of like, what is that? Like that for me would be like, well, where have I been where that magic happened? And then to go from there and like find physically and then,
2: you know. When I'm hearing, and I don't quite know how to articulate this, but I'm going to rely on Kateri, how you're giving yourself permission that the creative instrument isn't just kind of the inside of your body which is limited but it's this kind of bubble or it's the stage or it's the stage in the house that you're giving yourself permission because that moon is outside of that character right to have to to use your imagination to kind of fill up energetically yeah slash physically but energetically the story that really extends beyond this body well i
0: i it's interesting i i really appreciate that focus on sort of sharing and i was actually going to ask you when you were describing your substitution too is um if you've ever had an experience where you are in a scene probably in the same play you were talking about where your character actually had a shared memory with another character like you're both talking about something that happened in the past where because there's like this immediate click in with you if you've had a shared memory with someone, right? That's like what inside jokes do, sure. or even like nostalgia clicks into like everyone in this room has heard this song or has seen like these socks before, you know? And everyone's right. like, ah! And there's something really satisfying about sharing, like both you. I know both you and I ha- are having right. our, our our neurons are firing in a similar like way right now. That's really satisfying, and um, yeah, I guess I I. My my intuition says that to sort of cultivate that, like, again, you you probably start with separate jumping off points, but you soon have to, like, you soon build something that you actually have experienced with that actor. Right. Right? Like, and whether it's a previous time you did this scene or... Right.
1: And I believe that's so useful and absolutely needs attention. And that, that that's the bedrock or that's yeah. the stepping stone. Then that can get you to the next thing. Because you're... But that's the reality, right? Yeah. I mean, the the other is, is uh, imaginative yeah. and great, but also you are on stage with that person and it, something is happening. Right. That person... You know,
0: I mean, like, and it's yeah. so... It's it, another difference maybe between theater and film too is I always, like, every time I watch the behind-the-scenes making of any film uh-huh. and people are like, oh, yeah, I just met so-and-so and then we launched in right to the scene that day. I'm like, how the heck do yeah. you create that... Uh-huh. All of that with yeah. that person if you right. just shook hands with them no. like the day before. And like sometimes people will strategically do that, right? right? Um, So like I'm obsessed with the West Wing and like there's several uh, actors on the West Wing said they purposefully didn't go into the Oval Office set on the West Wing before they shot because they wanted oh. to feel intimidated but because apparently that was an amazing set that was like practically like being in the You're, Oval Office. Yeah. So sometimes you can strategically be like, okay, if there's a status relationship – between me and this performer that I wanted to actually maintain in the scene. Right. But like having an intimate, you know, it's, I just couldn't imagine. You know, and conversely, I think if you're in a show, maybe you had ex- an experience like this and somebody either subs out or there's a replacement who comes in. And so you've been doing it with a different performer and suddenly yeah. there's someone new there and you have to kind of scramble to rebuild.
1: Yeah. Or or you just leave it in the liminal space. Yeah. I mean, I, I had a an experience that I... Not a lot of us get um, with Lion King um, where it was playing this contiguously over six years or so, the same story with a lot of the same people. But, you know, it's a long running show and it's a marathon and you're doing it 365 days. We are, however, I mean, 52 weeks a year, um, eight shows. And so people sub out all the time. And uh, so... What what happens? I mean, and and because there's long a long term connection, I think you build um, a placeholder. For that, there. This is there's an entity, and whoever enters mm. that, yeah. And that's a, actually a gorgeous thing in a long running show too, to be si- full of surprise again, mm. yeah. And to be and often that's when but you the, wake up again, and you're right. like, oh, oh okay, yeah. but there's <laughs> a <laughs> twin. Let's do this. Oh, yeah. this is fun. Let's <laughs> but do that a, again. there's a
2: there's a twin. There's an yeah. imagined twin on stage that no matter who, which human sure. being fills that, yeah, is alive for you, yes, right. And, and then Lion changes. King, you've got a puppet
0: there, so you vote. There's a physical instantiation right. that's always the same, yeah. no matter who's wearing yeah. the head, right. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah. Yes, that is, that is absolutely true. So you can be attached yeah. maybe to this behaving. But that's also something I think they taught very eloquent, eloquently at uh, um, Michael Howard, which is not to ever judge what's happening over there. Mm-hmm. Even if you've, you, you may have some judgment that this person's not very good. Well, that's not useful at all. Maybe right. it's more useful to be like, well, wow, that is odd. In the through line of, mm-hmm. like, that characters responding yeah. to you. Like, Bonsai Bonsai doesn't sound like himself today. <sighs> <laughs> You're really having an off day, aren't you?
0: <laughs> <We're> okay. <laughs>
1: I'm going to have to come down extra hard on you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no hyena for you. Or, you know, or no zebra for you, rather, you know. So. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, like, but to always... To to click back in to the other and use absolutely everything. Don't say no. I mean, or say no in a way that augments. Yeah, that's yeah 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 yeah,
2: yeah. (laughs) yes and. Um, I want to ask you about your physicality of Scar. How did you hook in? I mean, I'm sure there were many many ways, but (laughs) how did he make sense to you physically, imaginatively?
1: Uh huh. I hadn't seen uh, the the cartoon. And I hadn't seen the show. I I watched. I listened to Jeremy Irons. I watched uh, the 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 um, that section of it, and I thought it sounds like Restoration Fop to me. It sounds like you know, like uh, mm-hmm. Simon Callow's masterclass on the Restoration Fop, like with the hanky and mm-hmm. the pull, and literally being about posture. And so initially my sense of it was that everything was chosen, the posture, the attack of what he says, and and it was all meant to damage Mm -hmm. whoever's around, to put somebody on edge, to... uh, to Your physicality just totally shifted. Yeah, I did. I just (laughs) sat up straight, which I never do. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So the, the and and also like uh, something about beginning to move around like that and having the cane and the self. It made me feel self important, and I mm. thought that seems right. Mm. That's se- let's go with that, and that's fun. That seems to have a lot of a uh, lot of uh, juice in it. Um, and so initially, I think that was my, I was like, oh, he's a restoration pop. I'm never going to book this, so I'm just going to go in and do <laughs> my Simon Callow restoration pop <laughs> and have a ball and yeah. just be mean as I can be. Yeah. My uh, best
0: auditions are ones where I never thought I would get the part and my... You know, if you think about the the sort of mindsets you go into in terms mm-hmm. of, like, the emotion regulation I study, my my very strong mindset going into my most successful auditions have been, this is my only chance to be this character. I'm not right. going to be able to do it in the run. So um, I So, so I'm going to fully do it. You know, yes. and the ones where I'm like, oh, I'm sure I'll be in the running. Like, this is just <laughs> to get me a call back. <laughs> no, never yeah. hear a word yes. again. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yes, but, I, do, you know, I totally know. They always say audition like you're performing and the yeah. only way i've ever been able to actually click into that is to tell myself this is my only chance. So right. if i get 2 minutes to be this person like this is my what my one, you yeah. know.
1: I think of what's also in that that's potent is that this is going to be fun.
0: Yes. I want oh, yes. to do that. It's an yeah. opportunity and not great. a threat. Yeah, you're right. And that
1: and so again your point of focus is over there yeah. about doing that thing and having that rather than are the am i doing it well? Yes. Well and, and it, it, it well i don't know if that resonated in the way i wanted it to i don't know if i'm getting the callback now you're not thinking about that because you're thinking about the joy of playing it
2: That's true um did you have to here's my final question i have many more but i'll resist (laughs) uh did you you get the part yeah by doing simon callow yeah and and yes and julie taymore actually was at the audition yeah which i did
1: the callback which i did not know and she came up and she was like Okay, well the, the the cane is, the cane is wearing you. You're not you're not oh, using the oh. cane. And then Scar is built on a snake, and she proceeded because she's a Lecoq person. What? At seventeen, she went to Lecoq. anyway, so she can do all of the things that she, she often asks people to do. is built on a
0: snake. Did she mean physically, or did yes. she mean like yeah. like
1: conceptually, like that? Oh, is he's all sinuous. Angles and yeah. it's all... It, there's nothing. No so lion this, is my, this was my question. Is no
0: lion. he's, lion.
1: he's, a, he's uh, it's all snake. It's a snake. So he's never upright. So she was like, you're, you're upright and proud, but you, mm. you, he's a snake. He's always angling. He's always mm. moving.
2: So she asked you, my question was, you, yeah. did you have to change what you were doing physically <laughs> from the callback to actually playing Scar, which you did. Yes. But clearly she saw something in that callback. Whether it was just making extremely strong specific choices, I think that that might have felt like okay. I'm going to hire this guy.
1: They were not, you know. I think that they were, you know, they were. Yeah, if they weren't correct in her mind or what she thought Scar is, they were at least taken from. The stepping stone of the text, and then extrapolated yeah. out yeah. from, and and yeah. then lived through. Because yeah. I had that moment of like, this is the only time I'm going to get mm-hmm. to do this. Yeah, and why not? Let's play. Yeah. Um. And then yeah. that's the thing—the play. Uh. So, but then also with Scar, it becomes immediately apparent once you put the costume on because she she's built it so that it uh, it's seventy five pounds. Uh, there are the chaps are you wear a jumpsuit which has two motors on either side of it because the mask sits on a huge uh, head like a world war one flying ace helmet and it has a boom on it and you have a controller on your finger oh. that you control how the mask comes down and kicks out and then comes back up so there are all of these technical limitations all of a sudden of like, this is what scar is. Literally, you can't move when you first get the costume. <laughs> you're like, this is completely impossible. Yeah. But then you're, but you're wearing like corsets and, and then the chaps are made of leather and they go out at angles. So then you begin to take that information, like how to build scar from that. And those are like her DNA instructions, I think, is yeah. in the costume. Like, no, it doesn't do that. Mm. It does this. It does this. This is what it does. Yeah. And on purpose. Yeah. yeah
2: but then you ultimately, once you get used to the costume, you find a freedom.
1: Yeah. That's the goal. Of yeah. That. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. But that's, you know, that's another thing I felt like was beautiful at, at, at uh, NYU and at Michael Howard is like, there isn't any freedom without structure. It's chaos, so one is always kind of teetering between chaos and organization, yeah. and trying to go in, and using these things as stepping stones, as I keep saying, as mm-hmm. uh, as as points of reference, mm-hmm. so that you can judge where you are and what's happening, and then move from there. But without those, it's just blah. yeah. Thank so you so much fun. So Thank you. That was a lot of so fun. So much. Yay! Yay. Yay. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>
2: And that's our episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please
0: spread the word. As always, we have resources up on our website, www.theactorsmind.com. If you are like, what was the book? What was the article? That's where you can go and get a reference. We also uh, do just a little bit of social mediaing. So if you want to follow us, we're at Actors Mind Pod on Facebook and Twitter and the Instagram. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>